Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder of 10 by 9 along with Padraig Tuma. We started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast in September 2011, and we're still there every month. It's a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And in case you've missed it, BBC Radio Ulster have been broadcasting some of our stories in a programme called Telltales. It's available on the BBC Sounds app. Not sure how available that is overseas, sorry. In the meantime, here are four stories you won't hear on the radio show, and they were recorded as part of Belfast Pride on July 31st to a capacity crowd at the Black Box. First up is Maureen Boyle. She told a story last year when we took 10 by 9 to Hillsborough, but this was her first time in front of the amazing Black Box audience. The summer of 1984 was the summer in between. I was working in a travel lodge on the outskirts of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the middle of Amish country on a J-1 visa. I was between courses, having just finished an English degree in Trinity. Between lovers, my boyfriend of the Trinity years was staying in the States at the end of the summer before I would go home. I had a place at Amherst for postgraduate work, but we sort of knew we would be better to let the college relationship go. So different were our ideas of what we wanted out of life. Lancaster was not the usual place for a J1 student to go, but an old friend of my father's from St. Columns in Derry had sponsored the visa and invited me to stay in his daughter's old room. That was a mistake. The glamorous life he'd painted in letters for years was very different in reality. And because he'd left Ireland in 1945, he constantly pointed out the wonders of America to me, as if I too had just arrived over on a boat out of the hungry 40s. The consolations were Lancaster and the people I met, and Wayne was one of those. He was a waiter in the travel lodge and we became friends. He'd studied film and literature in Boston, but come back to his home state after college. He too was in between, using that summer to decide where he would go next, hoping to return to his beloved Boston. He waited lunch and dinner, and I waited breakfast, which was crap for tips, so I had to do another job in the long, hot afternoons. But we had a crossover couple of hours as the breakfast shift ended and the restaurant was prepared for lunch. The restaurant was dark inside, as I remember a lot of American interiors that summer. It was lugubrious with dark wood, shaded windows, giant ceiling fans and beautifully laid tables. And Wayne and I would often find ourselves chatting while folding pink linen napkins and placing them in glasses for the lunch tables. He had a kind of classical American good looks, very scrubbed, almost pretty for a man, and he was gay. He didn't tell me this outright, but I learned it rather painfully from an almost daily joke that happened when he arrived in the kitchen. The cook, Annie, was German, as were the couple who owned the travel lodge, and her speciality was a lobster bisque, which was prepared every morning and bubbled gorgeously for lunch. When Wayne appeared, and I was teased unmercifully for pronouncing his name the way dairy people refer to their children, while the Americans had a different pronunciation, Wayne, which I'm not sure I can do, 
he would find lined up on the stainless steel shelf where the orders were placed a roll of neatly cut veg in various sizes of phallic shapes. <laughs> Carrots, sweet corn, courgettes. I don't actually remember now how he dealt with this, but it seemed to me a kind of tired joke eventually. We liked similar things, and so those conversations while napkin folding would cover art and literature and music. As someone who loved books, like many people I met that summer, he wanted to talk about Joyce and Flann Bryan, and in turn was happy to tell me about Boston. He spoke especially about his favourite museum, the Elizabeth Stewart Gardner Museum. And in that darkened, quiet dining room, he painted a vivid picture of the villa built by a 19th century American socialite to house her eclectic collection of art each room curated like an actual living room, mixing styles and periods. He was probably the first openly gay man I'd ever met, apart from David Norris, my wonderful tutor in Trinity, who would eventually take the Irish government to the European court to bring legalisation to Ireland in 1993. I had two friends in Trinity who I was sure were gay, but none were out. One would be found often in those pre-internet days looking up titles on homosexuality on the microfiche of the Lecky Library. We loved ballet too, and we talked about Nuraev since I was going to see him dance one weekend in New York when I stayed with a woman from home who'd kindly bought me tickets. She was a nurse in the Sloan Kettering, the big cancer hospital, and told me while I was there the finding of this rare cancer among mainly gay men, and how they were trying to find out what caused it. This was a Kaposi sarcoma that would become the awful, one of the awful defining crosses of AIDS. But in the summer of 84, HIV was still two years from being named, and the American Foundation for AIDS Research would be founded a year later in 85. I think I had the rather typical reaction of a straight woman to a beautiful gay man that was somehow a waste or a shame. But my friend Amy, who also waitressed in the travel lodge, had the other reaction. She would convert him. <laughs> this had unexpected consequences. Amy was having her 21st about a week before I was due to leave, and I had the house to myself. So a plan was hatched that we would all go out for the evening. Amy would stay with me, and somewhere in the evening, she would seduce William. <laughs> Amy had told me of the college rituals she and her friends had, of deliberately going out to eat and drink until they were sick. Not just being sick as a consequence, but being sick as the goal, which seemed a horribly apt metaphor for American excess. On the night in question, we three went for a meal and had lots of strawberry daiquiri. By the time we brought Amy home, Wayne had to help me put her to bed. She was totally out of it and drunk. As he was leaving, I kissed him goodnight. And somehow the kiss, which was meant to be just a friendly kiss, went on and turned into something else. He said, don't you know I'm gay? And I said, yes, but it went on anyway and was returned. And he stayed. Euphemism alert. We didn't have full sex. When, when the AIDS thing broke in the coming years, I'd be thankful for that. But it was very tender and sensual, and he told me I was the first woman he had any kind of physical relationship with. And then, for hours, he talked about his life, in a way he'd never done at work. He'd grown up in a coal mining town in the hills of northern Pennsylvania, where to be gay was simply not an option. He'd suffered in school, been beaten by a Catholic father who hated what he saw in his son, and so Boston had been an escape to a different world where he could be himself, and that was the life he was hoping to get back to again.
He left in the early hours and asked if we could meet the next day, which was a Saturday. I find myself strangely excited to see him and bemused that my first feelings for someone else after four years in one relationship would be with a gay man. But there was a kind of sweet freedom in knowing we had so little time, since I'd be leaving in a few days. He took me to a gay bar that had giant pictures of Nuraev and Streisand and introduced me to a red-headed Irishman who claimed to be on the run from the Provos. <laughs> For what was not clear, but he was clearly dining out on that story. <laughs> and in a few days, my Trinity boyfriend arrived to take me to Boston. Wayne and I said goodbye the night before, but painfully he waited our table on my last night in Lancaster when I brought my Irish friends to eat in the restaurant where I worked all summer, and it hurt that they mocked his camp American waiter twang of, hi, I'm Wayne, I'll be your waiter tonight, and here are our specials. In the years ahead, I often wondered what happened to him. We didn't stay in touch, but I watched with horrors as so many died in the following years, including Uriah. And a couple of years ago, I finally went to the Elizabeth Gardner Museum in Boston on a kind of pilgrimage to find his spirit at least and could see why he loved it so much. And what a beautiful start to an amazing evening. Thanks so much, Maureen. Next up, two stories back to back. In a few minutes, you'll hear Kirsty Mulholland. But first, here's Tony Doyle, who was at 10 by 9 for the first time. I was a gay child, <laughs> like, <laughs> from the age of two, everybody else knew that I was different. Um, I, luckily, I had a loving family. I was the baby of three sisters. Um, I had a brother and two parents that absolutely adored me. I also adored dolls. I adored, um, I was friends with girls. Uh, they were mostly who I clung on to. I couldn't stand sports. I couldn't play them. I, it just didn't really attach for me. I even used to put like my baby yellow blanket on my head and I would dance around the living room and pretend that I was Kylie. Um, I loved everything that you could possibly imagine as any typical camp kid um, would have loved when I was a kid. So I said earlier I've got a brother and it turns out he's also gay, um, which is everybody's dream typically, but not necessarily for me. So my parents found out that my brother was gay um, and at first my dad really wasn't that accepting of it. I overheard my brother and my dad arguing about it and I was only nine years old and I could overhear everything that they were saying. And in the heat of the moment, my brother had told my dad that, um, that I was gonna turn out the same as him. So I felt all kinds of shame about who I was. I felt like my parents were watching me. I thought they were looking out for any kind of mannerism or any clue that I was in fact like my big brother. Started to question things like who would continue the family name? Who'd be the man of the family? All of these really started to fester in me. So I had no choice. I had to change who I was to start being accepted um, moving forward. So I was a straight teen. <laughs> and from that age, kind of everything sort of changed for me. So I could tell you now that Manchester United um, won the treble from 98 to 99. <laughs> Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer scored the goal. And Teddy Sheringham scored the other one in injury time uh, against Bayern Munich in the Champions League final. And I genuinely was delighted that day. Um, Eddie Irvine was robbed in the Formula One. Um, <laughs> Schumacher broke his leg that year. Um, he was catching up and then Schumacher just got in in time and beat him. And I was genuinely angry. 
so I started to date girls, as every teenage boy was, every normal teenage boy, um, and I started to hit all those milestones that we'll not go into more detail about. Um, I dropped the school choir because it was gay. I started to be friends with the lads who did nothing but call me gay all the time. Um, <laughs> but that was okay, I was one of the lads, so it was all okay. One of my friends, who's still a good friend of mine to this day, um, Ali, his nickname was Big Gay Al. Um, and I even started to distance myself from my brother because I thought he'd have some sort of horrible gay influence on me. So it all led to the point where I actually started to convince everyone so heavily that I was straight that I started to believe it. Um, even though on a daily basis people were literally still calling me queer. So fast forward a bit, I moved to Manchester when I was 18. I was convinced I would always live in Manchester, um, so that was the plan. I ended up doing that. And I remember in the car driving over thinking, I'm going to reinvent myself. Um, this is the moment where I can really jump out and become who I really am. So I arrived at student halls and I moved in with nine other straight guys. And needless to say, I just went back into my shell again. And I started to get to know other gay people and all my friends were accepting of them, but it still just wasn't enough for me to go might be as well. I also started to distance myself from women at that point, so I started to realise that wasn't necessarily working for me either, so I genuinely started to feel a bit lost. So then my brother and sister came to visit me. Um, my brother was living in South Korea at the time, um, my sister from Banbridge, where I'm from, and they both came over to see me um, for Manchester Pride weekend. Um, my brother obviously dragged me to Pride. Um, so, but as the accepting, non-judgmental guy that I was, I decided, right, I'm going to go with him, support the brother, um, and make sure that, you know, I'm there for him, um, to support the community. So, Friday night ensued, we had a few drinks, we got chatting, and I got to the point where I had a few too many, and I started to say to him, you know what, I, you know, there's, there's times I think I might like boys. And my brother was really good about it, he didn't make a big deal, he was like, alright, oh, okay, I'm going to start dancing, doing whatever, the night progressed. So then he asked me at breakfast, um, you know, do, do you remember saying what you said last night? And then I started to panic and the heart started to race and I was like, oh, I was drunk, just ignore me, it was in the moment, that was fine. Then we got into the Saturday and Manchester Pride Parade was on and it took over the city. I was looking around me at all the people who were standing around watching the parade, at all of the organisations who were part of the parade, both charities, corporations to work for, you know, everyone who was involved in the parade that day. And I was just overcome by the amount of support that there was for the likes of the LGBT community. And for the first time, I looked around me and went, it's all right to begin. I think I'm okay. I think LGBT's okay. Aidan, Christine, brother, sister, I, I think I might be gay. Strange guy, can I kiss you and, and check? <laughs> And he obliged, and uh, <laughs> needless to say, I have been gay ever since. So then the big milestone had to happen, I had to tell my parents. So my sister was living in Bermuda at the time, I was living, well, I was in Manchester, my brother was South Korea, as I said, so I thought, let's go somewhere glamorous and exotic to have a reunion outside of Banbridge. So we went to Dublin. <laughs> And my brother was talking to my mum and dad, um, beknownst to me, I was out smoking on the balcony or something like that, and he came over to me and says, if you want to tell mum and dad, now is the time. I was like, why? Um, so I went over to them, and they suddenly said, are you happy? Yes. Are you seeing anybody? 
No. Are you interested in seeing anyone? Maybe. Are you interested in men or women? Fuck. <laughs> men. And my dad just suddenly said, after a pause that felt much longer than that one, that took balls. And then he gave me the biggest hug ever. And that night we went to a drag show and celebrated the whole event. It was the 31st of January, 2017. I was having my annual appraisal in work with my line manager, Liz. I work as a client relationship manager in the Bank of Ireland. Please don't hold that against me. <laughs> Liz and I had been talking for about an hour and the meeting was coming to an end. So, she said to me, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we finish? Yes. I stuttered and I stammered. I explained that what I had to tell her would change everything. And I don't know how it's going to affect my job and my relationships with my colleagues and my clients, but there's an issue that has affected me all my life. And I'm having to take steps to deal with it. And I've reached a point where I can't carry on as I am anymore. And the issue is that I'm transgender. My head was spinning. I was genuinely worried that I was going to faint, a bit like I am now, waiting for her to say something. That's okay. I don't know anything about it, but it'll be okay. And breathe. We spoke for another hour. I was able to tell her the whole story. Tell her my new name. Show her a photo of her new female colleague. Get her familiar with the process and time off that I might need for medical treatment. She cried. I cried. She said she would have given me a hug. Only we were in a glass office and people might have thought it was a bit weird that I was getting a hug at the end of my appraisal. <laughs> a week later, Liz called me aside. She'd read the subject of my transition with HR. And somebody called Kerry was going to be working with us on a transition plan. I'm very pleased to say Kerry is sitting just over there. So she features prominently. Um, so the three of us, Kerry, Liz and I, sat down together for the first time in mid-February and we went through the first draft of that plan. Kerry had also been able to establish that in the 230 plus year history of the Bank of Ireland, a company with well over 10,000 employees, I was the first person to ever do this. We were quite literally making this up as we went along. At the end of February, Liz got to meet the real me for the first time. We went out for lunch together. I think we were both surprised at just how relaxed we felt in each other's company. I mean, for 12 years, Liz had believed me to be male, straight and cis. And it turns out she was wrong on all three counts. We were quite literally, you know, I, I do not underestimate just how much of a shock that must have been for her. Carrie then joined us for a coffee after the meal and yet again it just seemed to feel completely normal when I suppose it really was a highly unusual situation. Afterwards we took a short walk down University Street to the Belfast Trans Resource Centre where Carrie had arranged for the three of us to sit down with the amazing Ellen Murray and Simon Stewart 
So we were making this up as we went along and who better to turn to for advice? Over the next few months, the transition plan gradually gathered momentum. Ellen and Simon from the Trans Resource Centre came into my building in late April to provide trans awareness training to Bank of Ireland HR and to the small team that I work in. The Northern Ireland senior management team of the bank were next to be advised of my transition and they then received the same training a few weeks later. Then the same thing again for the next tier of management down. This all took place over the course of May and June. Also during June, I was going through the process of coming out to just about everybody in my own department individually. Now, everybody that I told was surprised, but they were also supportive. I even found out that I had a couple of colleagues with trans friends and family. My last day in work as the old me was the 6th of July, 2017. When it came time to leave, I got a little bit emotional. Things like the last time that I signed off an email using my old name, and unbelievably, I even got slightly overwhelmed at the realisation that I had just paid my final ever visit to the men's toilet. <laughs> I took the next three weeks off to begin my transition, and while I was off, that's when the real work began back in the office. On my first day off, everybody in my building received an email from the head of the bank in Northern Ireland advising of my transition and inviting them to one further awareness session with Ellen and Simon. I'm told there was standing room only at it and people were even phoning in from other offices all around Northern Ireland. Every single one of my 70-odd business clients were advised of my transition in a phone call from somebody that they already knew in the bank. This phone call was then followed up with a letter that I had helped compose, explaining how I had the full support of senior management in my transition, reminding them to use my new name and female pronouns, and directing them to appropriate websites and other resources for further information if they felt the need. Now, the phone calls and the letters were great, but the people who were making the calls were then reporting back to Liz, who was collating the responses, making sure that nobody got missed and also taking a note of anybody who responded negatively and might cause problems. Meanwhile, Kerry and a few others were sorting out systems and HR issues. A new email address, phone contract, business cards, company credit card, system logons, payroll ID, company pension. The amount of things that needed done just sometimes felt endless. My first day in work as the real me was the 27th of July 2017, two years ago Saturday passed. It was remarkably smooth. The system changes were all in place. With the exception of one or two people who were on holiday, my clients all knew about me. And none of them, not a single one of them, had said anything negative and still have not to this day. The amount of work and organisation that went into making all this possible was staggering. In September 2017, Bank of Ireland UK announced that it would be holding internal awards to be known as the Star Awards. Now, I know it is very easy to be cynical about things like that, but I decided to go with it. So one of the six categories in the awards was called Inspiring Partnerships. It was for 
a colleague on a team who is an ambassador in making partnerships successful, who lives and breathes the partnership ingredients of common purpose, mutual respect, trust, communication, solving problems and complementary skills. So, thinking about everything that Kerry and Liz had done for me, I thought they were a great fit and I thought that they deserved the recognition. So I wrote a joint nomination for them and I sent it off. The Northern Ireland Star Awards were held in early November. I wasn't there. <laughs> I was visiting friends in England. I think I was in a restaurant having my lunch when I got a text from Liz telling me that she and Kerry had won the award the previous night. I was so pleased for them. But that wasn't even the best part. In winning the Northern Ireland Award, they would then be going forward to the UK finals to be held in London in December, which was great, apart from one thing. Kerry was going to be on her holidays. So she very kindly offered her place at the ceremony to me, and I very gratefully accepted. On the 5th of December, and along with the other regional award winners from Northern Ireland, Liz and I flew over to Heathrow, ready for the Star Awards UK finals at the five-star Conrad's and James Hotel. All of the top brass from Bank of Ireland UK were there, and they all seemed to know who I was. That would not have been the case 12 months earlier. The evening was really good. It was a lot of fun. The Inspiring Partnerships Award was being announced near the end. And just as the nominations were being read out, I leaned over to Liz and said, if you win this, I'm not going up. You're the winner. I'm just the nominator. The host opened the golden envelope and read out the winner's name. Yeah, I was carrying Liz, obviously. <laughs> just as Liz was getting to her feet to approach the stage, the host then added, Unfortunately, Kerry can't be with us tonight, but we're very lucky to have Kirsty here to accept the award on Kerry's behalf. <laughs> so it looked like I was getting up on the stage after all. All of this brings me to the end of my story, and I suppose to the point of my story as well. Many trans people, when we realise that we need to transition, particularly those of us who do it a little bit later in life, worry terribly about the consequences, how people are going to react even if we'll be able to hold down a job at all. I know this because these were my worries for years. My reality was a little different. I began 2017 in January, dizzy with panic, terrified that I was basically ending my career as I came out to my line manager. I ended 2017 in December, standing next to her on a stage in central London, in front of 200 applauding colleagues, as she was presented with an award for the work that she had done in making my transition possible. Sometimes dreams do come true. Now, how brilliant was that? Kirsty has been coming to Ten by Nine for some time, so hopefully we'll hear more from her in the future. And Tony too, who we're glad to hear, has overcome his straight teen years. You can see photos from our Pride Night on our social media feeds. That's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And also check out our website, 10by9.com, for all the info on upcoming events. Now, our final story, and she's told us about the Lesbian Avengers previously, but this time it was a very different story. Here's Fidel McCarlin. I grew up in Cabin Town, in a traditional middle-class Catholic family, in a house with a good room in which the good cups and the good biscuits came out for visitors. 
We went to Mass. We said the rosary or some sort of family prayers most nights. Like all good Catholic families, we had a Bible in the house. And like all good Catholic families, we didn't actually read it. <laughs> From our sitting room window, we could see the cathedral in the Protestant church. I now know it's the Church of Ireland church, but back then, I didn't even know there were different types of Protestants. There was also the parish hall where I went to the youth club and where the Legion of Mary met. There was the Protestant hall where we played badminton and gave blood. <laughs> I didn't know much about Protestants. I went to Loretto Convent School, a youth club in the parish hall, and although I played sports, my teammates, like me, all went to Mass on a Sunday. There was a royal school in the town where the Protestants went, and apart from running against them in the county school sports, I didn't knowingly have a proper conversation with a Protestant until I was about 17. However, I did know which of the shops in the town were owned by Protestants, and I wonder now, why did I know that? I heard that their mass lasted for over an hour and a half and they had to go to school on a Sunday, so I felt quite sorry for them. <laughs> My mother was a Catholic marriage advisory counsellor. <coughs> this means she delivered pre-marriage courses and taught natural family planning. Just as well, there was only three of us. In our house, instead of a chart hanging on the fridge with our names on it and stars for good behaviour, we had my mother's ovulation chart. <laughs> I made that up. But if your mother is a fan of natural family planning and you're a kid faking illness to get off school, don't use the thermometer in your mother's bedside drawer to prove how sick you are. The Protestants can ask the Catholics about that one later. My father had been sent to St. Pat's College in Cavan as a boarder, the diocesan boys' school. As the second son on a farm, my granny had hopes that he would become a priest. In fact, I think she held it against my mother for years that she scuppered his chances. I remember a conversation with her when she was in her late 80s, and she commented, your father would have made a great priest. And I immediately responded, but then I wouldn't be here. And I wasn't entirely convinced my presence in the world was worth his vocational sacrifice. <laughs> I did know that I liked girls, but I also knew that I wasn't supposed to like girls, and truth to be told, boys were better company and they played football. Like many young people who felt different in a small town, I got out as soon as I could. I left my small, Catholic, socially conservative hometown of Cavan to go where I could expand my horizons, be myself, embrace liberalism, Dublin, London, Manchester, Berlin, all good choices, but no, I choose Coleraine. <laughs> at the University of Ulster doing a media studies and English degree. I got involved in the Catholic chaplaincy and there was a lovely priest there, Father Brian. He was a genuinely nice guy. I also played the Baron at Mass in the lecture theatre of the University on a Sunday night. I was only learning to play it and for anyone who attended that Mass, they had received immediate absolution because my playing was so bad it served as penance for the most egregious of sins. <laughs> In university, I got involved with the women's group and came out firstly to myself and eventually to others. 
Well, the relationship with the church started to diverge because of its attitude to women and to gay people. Pope John Paul had made comments about gay people being intrinsically disordered and the gay rights as an ideology of evil. I tried to find some sort of common ground and read some books on feminist theology, women and the church, lesbian nuns breaking the silence. But in spite of my positive experience with individual clergy, I decided that I didn't want to be involved in any institution that wouldn't let me be in charge just because I was a woman. So God and the church were all the same to me. I couldn't separate them. I held the church accountable for the appalling attitude to LGBT plus people in Irish society. And when I came out to my parents, it didn't go particularly well. They were genuinely surprised. Though having Roy of the Rovers comic on order at my local newsagent since I was seven should have given them a bit of a heads up. <laughs> One of my parents' friends talked about their gay brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, sons, daughters. There was a conspiracy of silence filled in by negative comments in the media by churches and politicians. Now, I always knew that once society said it was okay, okay to be gay, my mother would be the first to be saying, Ah, Sharafa Down was one of them years ago. <laughs> I think that's why I've always been such a strong advocate of supporting people to be out, particularly in workplaces where you're thrown together and don't get to choose who you engage with. And where was God in all this? For me, he was just part of the problem. Some stupid Bible passages got trotted out from Leviticus. Every time someone came on the radio and started their sentence, as a Christian, I knew they were going to say something I would disagree with. Something homophobic, misogynistic, sectarian. And generally, I was right. So for 20 years, I happily ignored it all. I worked in the community sector and then as a trade union official. As an LGBT activist, I joined the Lesbian Avengers briefly. And you can hear more about that on the 10 by 9 podcast. <laughs> I campaigned for a more inclusive society. My attitude was no one should be treated any less just because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. I promoted the pride service at All Souls, but thought it hypocritical to attend. Then, out of the blue, a good friend of mine sent me an email about religion, about the Bible, the resurrection. My first instinct was that she'd been hacked by right-wing Christians. <laughs> but no. She had decided to re-engage with her faith, and we entered into discussion. Her with all the zeal and certainty of a convert, me with the scepticism of someone who was offered second-hand wood-burning wood pellets by a DUP spad. <laughs> our discussions were conducted by email and in person. We went out for dinner one evening and talked about faith, hers and my lack of it, and she started quoting revelations emphasising the potential for the coming of Jesus and judgment at any moment. And I was thinking, is this a hint to hurry up and eat my dinner? <laughs> because if the rapture happens, I need to face famine and pestilence on a full stomach. <laughs> what she didn't realise was, I'd be fine. When she would disappear skywards, I intended to finish her dinner. <laughs> but generally, I was supportive. I will encourage anyone who's trying to change things for LGBT plus people. And I was aware that churches are, were a significant area to take on. I did feel particularly sorry for her, though, because she is a Presbyterian. <laughs> I guess what sparked in me was the question about what did I actually believe? I had long, got, long since gotten to the stage where I felt that Christianity and being gay were not just incompatible, but why would you bother, given the negativity? This religion had done untold damage to LGBT plus people through conversion therapy, causing parents to reject their own children, and people self-harming and even taking their own lives. But my friend made a valid point. There were these Christians who had set themselves up to say, you can't be gay and a Christian, that LGBT plus people can't have a real relationship with God without repenting and embracing celibacy. 
Why would you? She reviewed these Christians as actively preventing or denying LGBT plus people um, the opportunity to engage with their faith, and she viewed it as a sin. And she quoted some Bible passage about nothing separating a person from the love of God. I saw it as, hang on a minute, who says I can't do something just because I'm a lesbian? <laughs> I knew a number of straight people who did have a faith and were fully supportive of equality. So I had conversations with them about how they squared that circle. I read more books. I attended some talks about inclusion in churches. I read The God Delusion, which my friend was horrified by and challenged me to read the actual Bible, which I had been reading about, but actually, I actually hadn't actually read, apart from looking up the clobber passages to refute them. So I decided I would, and I dug out a copy of the New Testament upon which was written my name and the year 1988. It had travelled in my pile of books from house to house. I started reading, and even though many were familiar stories I'd heard at Mass or in school, they sounded new. I hadn't realised that Jesus was such a socialist. That the emphasis on helping the most marginalised dominated in the Gospels, and yet for all the years all I'd ever heard the Church focus on was sexual sin. This was a Christianity I could relate to. This echoed how I wanted to be in the world, contribute to it. So I decided to go along to All Souls in Elmwood Avenue. It's a non-subscribing Presbyterian church. And someone asked me why there. Well, I'm from Cavan. And we're known for putting forks in the sugar bowl when we see the visitors coming. <laughs> so when I saw that All Souls was a non-subscribing, I thought that meant you didn't have to pay any money. <laughs> Now, you might say, what about the free Presbyterians? <laughs> but, as my mother often said, if something seems too good to be true. <laughs> I chose there because it was the most inclusive church I knew about and continue to attend. I'm happy to go to Mass when I'm at home, and Sir St. Anthony's a great fella to call upon when you lose something, which at my age is getting more frequent. <laughs> So if you're an LGBT plus Christian, Jew, Muslim, Hindu or whatever who's felt rejected by your institutional religion, don't let them force you to give up on your faith. On Saturday at the parade, while I'll be walking with my trade union unison, I'm delighted that lots of LGBT plus people and allies will have overcome that prejudice and we walk in with Christians of pride. Now anyone who's interested in getting a Bible, as a Cavan woman, I recommend the Catholic one, because you get seven more books than in the Protestant one. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, she really is a force of nature. Thanks so much, Fidelma. That's it from the 10 by 9 podcast for now. Our thanks to the wonderful people at the Black Box, Tracy at Belfast Pride, and also thanks to our amazing audience that night and to you for listening. But of course, the biggest thank you goes to Maureen, Tony, Kirsty, and Fidelma. Don't forget to check out Telltales on BBC Radio Ulster and the BBC Sounds app. Keep up to date with all the 10 by 9 news on our website, 10by9.com, plus our social media feeds, where a like, a share, or a retweet is always appreciated. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. And if you can, give us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts. We'd be very grateful. It helps get us noticed. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, and we got that at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye. <laughs>